Hi, I'm Audra. And I'm Sadie. And we are former English Lit majors and sisters who miss reading and discussing literature with fellow Lit nerds. And we created this podcast to discuss literature fueled by libations. So pick your poison and join us each week to discuss all the queries and views unearthed in great books. And support your local bookstore. Welcome, everybody, to Lit and Libations. So glad to be back. Hi, Sadie. Hi, Audra. Um, so yeah, Sadie and I took a little break. We were actually together Woo-hoo! in the same place. Uh, took a trip out to visit Sadie, and we went to Boston and Cambridge and Salem and the Berkshires, and it was lovely and magical, and we went to as many bookstores as we could. Oh, and, and we went to I a lot. I came home with, I think, I came home with eight books, I think, for me, and then I bought a couple books that were gifts for people and the kids. How many did you end up taking home? Um, I ended up with nine books for myself and myself only. Um, Yeah, I think between us and then also the books that our sisters and my mom bought, like, I think we, we did, we done good for the small book business this week. We did our best and they were awesome bookstores. I tagged them. Minus the Harvard bookstore, but I figure they don't really need uh, need too much publicity. But no, uh, I'm sure they're not that, not that we're giving much publicity with our little <laughs> podcast. But I don't think we got a picture there. We did go to the Harvard book. Did we get a picture at the Harvard bookstore? Mm. No, we did. Who has that picture? We had to have. We had to have. I might. I might have it. Let me just double. I will go through my photos and see if I have it. Um, if not, it may be on like Megan's phone or something. But okay, someone because I, I feel it, like we yeah, got we went there too. Yeah, I feel like we got one in every single one we went to. But the ones that we went to, you tagged in your most recent post of your book haul. Yes, and then yes. um, and we'll just list them out for you. We went to the bookstore in Lenox, um, very quaint little bookstore. They also have like a little wine bar, and um, they're super cute. And then we went to. I guess the next one would be the Concord Bookstore. Yes. And then we went to the Cambridge. And that was really big. That was a large, that was a pretty large one. That one was really big. And then also, I really liked the bookstore. Uh, The manager or owner, one of the guys that worked there, he did a lot of like the staff recommendations. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the books that I got there was George Saunders' new short story collection. And, and it was signed. It was signed. It was so cool. I guess he had just like pretty recently been at the bookstore to do book signings and stuff. And um, I was That's talking. Awesome. I was talking with the um, with the person that worked there about him, and we were just talking the about the bookseller. Him. Yeah, and he said he was so nice and is very pleasant, and is you know he's like his stories are so out there, and I was like, yeah, that was like the best part. It was very fun, and then. Um, and then after that, we did the Harvard Bookstore, which is mm-hmm. not actually affiliated with the college. It is still like a privately owned independent bookstore. Independent yeah. bookstore. And then um, we did Wicked Good Books in Salem. And that was that was fun. That was a like, cute little small store. Yeah, I really liked that. So yeah, there. I just love going out to see all those bookstores and buy books. Uh, so we had a good time. So, But yeah. we did take the time off. So we're going to get into this is our first of three episodes discussing Salman Rushdie's um, I think it was his ninth novel The Ground Beneath Her Feet so we're doing six chapters per episode um, to get through the book Uh, so if you haven't 
just stop here and mm. go read at least the first six chapters. Um, I don't think it will be difficult. I'm excited to talk about this book. Yeah. Uh, and we don't know what we're doing next, but we will be sure to announce it on Instagram as soon as we know. And then also um, at the next episode as well. So we'll still give you plenty of time uh, to go pick up a copy and get reading um, so you can follow up with our next one. Um, and I think that's it, unless you have anything mm -hmm. else to add before we get into it. Mm -mm. I think that's it. Cool. Um, all right. So this was my pick. So just a little backstory. So the ground beneath her feet. Um, I was wrong. It's actually Salman Rushdie's sixth novel. So this was published in 99. Um, and it kind of, I mean, at like the gist of it, I suppose it's kind of a love triangle in a way. Um, between Ormus, Umid, Ray Merchant, and then Vina Apsara. Um, but it's kind of a variation on the Orpheus Erudite myth. Uh, so really about, you know, Ormus is a musician and he hopes to bring back his love, Vina, from the dead, basically, yeah. um, which is kind of the Orpheus Erudite myth. Um, and then Ray is well, their friend. He's also in love with Vina and he's the narrator of the novel, which we'll talk about more. Um, and it has kind of an alternate history in some ways. You, you don't see it right off the bat, but it's kind of an alternate history to the entire like fifties through the 1990s, specifically around music. Um, and it's post-colonialism. It's set in India and England mostly and America. And it was only, I think it was his only novel. Yes, that's correct. That's set in America. Um, and that's mostly in the second half of the book, which we'll get into in the next couple episodes. But um, and then the title is a song for, that's in the novel that the character almost Ormus composes. And I didn't know this until I was looking more into it. You too actually recorded a version of that song. They changed Whoa. a few of the lyrics. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Um, yeah. And then that song was in a film called The Million Dollar Hotel. And uh, Salman Rushdie makes a like cameo in the video. Um, the Sheesh. cool thing, I really like this novel. This is one of my favorites of Salman Rushdie, and I love Salman Rushdie. And one of the things I think is so cool is he reintroduces characters in this novel from some of his previous novels, like Midnight's Children, The Satanic Verses, and The Moor's Last Sigh. And he also has a couple settings that are in his other novels that are in this novel. Oh, so it really that's cool. ties in, like, yeah, it's like this whole, it kind of, I don't know, it makes me think of this alternate reality right that he's created with all these stories like novels are kind of these alternate realities and so it really opens up that world even more which is funny because the novel itself like I already kind of said is kind of a parallel universe yeah to ours so I don't know I just think it's really cool um and then this this book of his it was turned into this like I don't know if you like I don't know like an opera kind of or like a movie and I don't know, it was like movies and music and it was at this like film festival and it it was like kind of just a movie version, but with also live music of this novel. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool. Um, yeah. So what did what did you think? Off the, I just want to get your impressions off the bat. So I won't lie. So keeping our discussion within the first six chapters, it took me like a minute to get into this book. Like, I would say yeah, that's fair. It, it took me, like, a good 75 pages to really feel like I had my head on my shoulders about what was going okay. on because there are so many characters. And then it also kind of, like, um, 
flits around to to different like periods kind of in their relationship. I just I I think that this narrator is really interesting. So the narrator is Rye, um, mm-hmm. Merchant, and um, he's he, it's just interesting to think of him as a narrator, and then like how much of this is like Rushdie's style versus Rye's style of writing. You know, almost as like a non-writer. It's like a very. It's just interesting, it, but it took me a minute to, to get into it and to figure out who people were and to, like, figure out, um, like, when he's kind of talking about sometimes, but I do really like it. I do really like it, especially as the this, like, parallel universe starts really coming into play and it just becomes, like, like kind of weird things that are mentioned at the beginning start to kind of like become larger and seem to make sense like specifically with um Ormus and how he writes songs and how he like I, I Ormus is just very interesting so like part of his story is that he was a twin and that his twin died in the womb and um he like communicates with his dead twin like in his dreams and um his dead twin who's I can't remember his name it starts with like a g or something it's a weird name um I'll find it he speaks to him in the dream and sings songs to him and like as you read more and like really like chapter six is where it really becomes clear which is why I think it's fun actually that just coincidentally We've divided the novel up this way. Like, I feel like that was a fun way to end the first episode. Um, Yeah. It becomes clear that, you know, he's being sung songs from, like, another universe that are being written by somebody else. And, like, I think it's so – I think that makes everything else that's happened so much more fun. Um, And it makes it – it's just very interesting. And the the subtlety – like, it's so subtle the way it talks about – this alternate universe that it just really yeah. sneaks in on you. And if you yes. didn't know much about music in that time, unless you Googled it, I don't know that like anybody would have really noticed. Like the biggest one was um the bridge over troubled water, which, you know, is the same song, but in this universe it was written and sung by Carly Simon and Guinevere Garfunkel. <laughs> Which is interesting if you like know it's also like her relationship with Art Simon and yeah. like yeah I agree. well and then the chapter six ends with it being about a song from John Lennon mm-hmm. which like that's where like if you didn't already know like it re- like I don't know how you couldn't know it becomes that. really obvious just, like, by the end like what he's he's talking to um to Yule Singh who he's in, like I just love all of their characters he's. He's like, I don't know, what would you call him? Just like a music, he he like represents people in the music industry, but he's also just like this businessman. Yeah, like, he's kind of like a producer, maybe, but not, yeah, not, not that, like a music producer, but more like the money behind it, you know? Yeah, so he, Ormus has like played this song that he has, you know, heard from his dead twin brother in the netherworld in his brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, uh, 
this that song, we aren't putting it out until next year. We haven't even recorded it yet. There isn't even a fucking demo. The guy just wrote it. He just played it to me on his fucking piano in London, okay? And then I fly to Bombay to see my sweet old mother, who, God bless her, I've now left out there for many minutes, wondering why is her son swearing in front of her? You understand what I'm saying? This is not right. It shouldn't be this way. I kept reading just because I love how he writes, yeah. like, dialogue. Because it's exactly what peop- how people talk, like... I like hearing your thought on how it took you a little while to get into it and why and with the kind of back and forth. Mm-hmm. I totally see what you're saying. I enjoyed it because I kind of, you know, it's like, I guess it's Rye who's narrating it. At least me, that's kind of how I tell stories sometimes. Like you start oh, one place about what you want to talk about and then you go off on this tangent and then that tangent and you're like, how the hell did I even get back here? And then it's like, you're talking about characters and you try to give background, but then you kind of talk about them in ways that you expect other people to know who you're talking about sometimes. And they kind of can't like, that's kind of how I took it. It's like this long ram, not rambly, but this it's him narrating this well, and, and it him is giving this. Of, it, I, it, I wouldn't say it's rambly, but I would say it's maybe a little like, there are a lot of words and like there's a lot of details <laughs> and the, like this wordy. is a long book and it definitely feels like um it's just i i don't i don't i don't know how to explain it but it kind of feels almost like a narrator from like a 19th century novel where it's just like mm-hmm. okay are they being paid per word like what's going on here is this dickens <laughs> like and it's yes. not bad. He's very but I, expansive, that's for sure. Yes, but like, it's not, and it's not bad, but I think it just plays into the fact that this narrator who's telling the story is the one who's controlling the narrative. And it definitely feels like the narrator writing the story versus like Rushdie. Um, and obviously yes. Rushdie is writing it, but I'm just saying it's almost like Rushdie's in character. And it's, mm-hmm. I think it's done very well in that way. Um, That's and one of my favorite things about his novels mm-hmm. is his narrators. Midnight's Children is the same. Like, mm-hmm. not, I mean the same in that the narrator does feel like a character he's, like, he's portraying yeah. as he's writing. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, and I mean, in, in this case, obviously, like, Rai is, like, a main character and is, like, entrenched in the plot of the story and the relationships and stuff and so like it also brings into to mind like just who he is and then also who he is as like a creative kind of person so we find out um at the beginning really well it ends with um vina's it's vina right i think so yeah vina yes vina um it ends with her death well, it starts with her death, kind of. Like, it starts with talking about the, her, the night and the day, like, before her death and stuff. And then, um, you know, she's this big music star. We find out that her and, um, and oh, my gosh, we've said his name, like, so many times. Wait, Ormus? Yes. Yes, you thank talking? you, Ormus. Yeah. I want to say, I keep wanting to say Orpheus. But it is not Orpheus, even though it's kind of supposed to be Orpheus. Um, but anyway, they're like these these monumental, like huge stars. And um, she specifically is like this cultural icon. And um, it kind of starts with this, you know, like drug-induced 
haze, you know, and um, but he's like her photographer and he is like her good friend and he follows her around and he kind of like documents everything. But he's really respectful, obviously, because he's like in love with her. And um, there's this part where there's this, you know, the earthquake that happens and they're in Mexico and he talks about being a photographer basically and taking out his camera and the way that he takes photos and like thinks about taking photos and I'm not gonna lie I was kind of like I don't know if disturbed is the right word you know but he's talking about taking photos and just of like people dying around him you know and um that was a weird introduction. It kind of turned me off to this narrator a little bit. I liked him more as the chapters went on. Um, but it, it does kind of like put into question, I don't know, not, not specifically the way he was taking photos, but like this beginning part kind of just put me off by him. I don't know. Interesting. Like um, there's this part. I need to find it where he's talking about well you can you keep looking i'll i'll talk i think it's i really liked him i think it's interesting when we have you know obviously different outlooks on it i i really liked his outlook on kind of being an observer like and and a and an appreciator but having to almost to have this like it's like he had to have this distance but that hurt him because he really felt passionately passionately about what he saw so like I like how he talks about music and art and photography because like me personally, I really enjoy all those things, but I don't think I excel at any of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like, it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not a skill I have, but I really appreciate it and I'm into it. And I just love how he talked about it. Um, Did you find the part that you wanted to talk about? No, (laughs) keep going. Okay. So like he, I love what he says about singing because you know, the, obviously music is maybe a fourth character in this novel. Um, and and specifically people who make music and he said why do we care about singers wherein lies the power of songs maybe it derives from the sheer strangeness of their being singing in the world the note the scale the chord melodies harmonies arrangements symphonies ragas chinese operas jazz reggae excuse me the blues that such things should exist that we should have discovered the magical intervals and distances that yield the poor cluster of notes all within the span of a human hand from which we can build our cathedrals of sound, is as alchemical a mystery as mathematics or wine or love. Maybe the birds taught us, maybe not. Maybe we are just creatures in search of exaltation. We don't have much of it. Our lives are not what we deserve. They are, let us agree, in many painful Mm -hmm. ways deficient. Song turns them into something else. Song shows us a world that is worthy of our yearning. It shows us ourselves as they might be if we were worthy of the world. And that passage in particular... I swear I'm going to start finding a connection to Star Trek in every book that we do. (laughs) But there is this awesome, awesome episode in Star Trek Discovery where the doctor is, who's actually a hologram, they are interacting with this planet and the people there don't have song. They don't know what that is. And they hear him singing opera. He's the actor is actually this really great singer. And they hear him singing opera and they just revere him and he puts on concerts for them and he teaches mm-hmm. them all about music and sound. And then what happens is they end up 
it gets out of hand and his ego gets a little crazy and they're supposed to leave and he's choosing to stay on the planet and be their singer. But then they have made another one of him that makes the like perfect songs and it takes Mm. the humanity out of it. And so it was this interesting like outlook on what is music and singers and who it comes from. And anyway, so it made me think of that, but I just love how he talks about it and I don't know. It it is very expansive and verbose. Like I, 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 just love I think it all. I think sometimes it it borders on long winded. Like, but the thing is, is that it's very beautiful when it's very very beautiful. But there were times that I was like, okay, like this guy needs to take a breath and make a paragraph. And like I don't know, like I just like sometimes. <laughs> Like, I thought he was long-winded, but in the same way that, like, I think that Ishmael's long-winded in Moby Dick. Like, it's, like, still important, and it still says something about the character, and it's still good. It's just, like, give me a break, dude. But it's very similar in how I think you said, like, the way you connected to how people actually do tell stories is oftentimes when we tell a story, it's very long-winded, like, and doesn't get to the point necessarily quickly and bounces all over the place. Um, But I do, I agree that, like, there are these periodically, these, like, random smaller paragraphs in between when he's about to change subjects. Um that I find really interesting. I'm trying to find a good one visually. Like usually it's pretty easy to see. Um, let's see. Well, I, I, I highlighted one. You keep looking for years that I think this is what you're talking about. And so I just read that thing about singing. Yeah. And then he gives this lovely paragraph. Five mysteries hold the keys to the unseen, the act of love and the birth of a baby and the contemplation of great art and being in the presence of death or disaster and hearing the human voice lifted in song. These are the occasions when the bolts of the universe fly open and we are given a glimpse of what is hidden, an F of the ineffable. Glory bursts upon us in such hours, the dark glory of earthquakes, the slippery wonder of new life, the radiance of Vena singing. And then he goes on to talk about Vena. Mm-hmm. Like, so I think, I mean, he connects everything. I think that's where it doesn't, for me personally, it doesn't feel meandering because it's like, it's all connected. Does that make sense? It is all connected. But like, <laughs> but, but that was, like, that was I, the most obvious but statement I've ever heard. It is all connected. It is all but. connected. However, <laughs> however. <laughs> I found myself, and maybe my opinion will change as I further read the novel and grow to appreciate it, Um, but there were times when he was talking about, like, maybe his parents or, like, um, like, other periphery characters that are important to the history and, like, to, to, like, who these characters are. But there was actually, there was a little too much almost from their perspective. Like, um, like I, th- I think it's his dad. I'm trying to think of whose dad it is. The one who's like the Angliophile. The one who's like obsessed with That's England. That's Ormus, Ormus's dad. Yeah, Ormus's dad. And then um, that Englishman 
that he talks to a lot. There's a lot of stuff between them that... Oh, uh, Sir, Sir Kama. Yes. That I'm sure is important. It was Lord Methol- Methwald and Sir Cormus. Um, I'm sure it's important. I'm sure it's in here for a reason. But I personally found it to be a little boring because maybe because I just found the other characters to be much more interesting. Like I was kind of like, okay, like I just got to like push through this page that's about this conversation or whatever between these two characters so that I can get to the juicy stuff, which is like Ormus and Vina and um, and it's everything that happens with them and like Parsis and, and like all of these other interesting characters and what they do for each other. So like... That kind of stuff I felt like was a little could have par- been pared down a little bit, um, but again, like my opinion might on that like might change, and a lot of that is very subjective. Like, I mean, most of what we talk about on this podcast is very subjective as far as like personal preference. Um, but I did find myself that like there were some sections that I just kind of like had to get through in a way, to get to what I really wanted to read about. Um, but the And I think that part of that might be a pacing issue that maybe I feel mm. a little bit in this first six, six um, chapters of the book is that I was just waiting for it to kind of really get started and get rolling. Um, and those snippets maybe made it feel a little held back and that could be part of why it took me longer to get into it does that make sense yeah I get what you're saying I mean I don't I don't I didn't feel the same things yeah and oh my we didn't talk about our drinks (laughs) I just saw you take a drink and I'm like shit when did we talk about our drinks (laughs) fuck okay we'll share it at the end yeah share it at the end yeah sorry um I guess for me, I think that he's just this, I I really like how he tells stories. Mm. I mean, in general. And then in this book, I, I, I like it. I mean, I didn't, I, I can understand what you're saying. And I, like, I'm not listening to you going, where the hell is she getting this from? But it just didn't, those things didn't occur to me. I didn't feel that way about it. Like, I, I like how it's, it opens with the death basically of one of our major characters and yeah like that's and, and it's and it's done in this like huge catastrophic way and there's sex and there's an unrequited love and you know that there's these two lovers that are torn apart and there's drugs and there's music like it's like this big I don't know I kind of took it like you know sometimes in tv shows you'll have like this big opening right of some big event before mm-hmm. like the credits or whatever and then you kind of you know 4 days later or earlier or right, whatever right, like right. kind of what happened and it's this like so then i took it that way and then it's this it's like now i'm having to wait to find out well what what the hell was all this like yeah and i so i liked the build and the backstory cuz i feel like all the characters are always even if they're like as we get into it, there's just more and more characters and mm-hmm. there's, I don't know, I guess I just took it like some of them I want to know more about and some of them I don't, but I like all of them and I want to hear it. And I, I feel mm-hmm. like you really get to understand the characters more of, of Rai and Ormus and Vina when you 
understand more about where they came from and not just like who their parents were or their siblings or what they did, but, but like what they thought and their traumas and their issues and their prejudices. And Mm -hmm. like, it really just added for me more depth to the three main characters and to the locations. Like, Mm. you know, I think, like I said before, Bombay to Rushdie is like, you know, Dublin to like James Joyce or I can't think of another one. That's a perfect analogy. (laughs) Yeah. It is also such a character. Yeah. And I think you really get that in them talking about their parents, even though like one of them is an Anglophile, but it's like, that's such an interesting dichotomy that he is in India with all of the shit that Britain did to India. And so that is an interesting facet. And he continues to do it through the rest of the book, like with England and with America specifically. I think, I think his description of America is my favorite. Like it, it's both a love song and, but without, it's a love song because it's, it's the shitty parts and the good parts. Mm -hmm. And it's told from the perspective of an, of outsiders. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is always an interesting way to 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 hear about someplace, um, and it contrasts so differently with like how Bombay's talked about. But anyway, I get I like I said I get what you're saying. I don't agree with you, but like <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I I mean it's not like I wanted that stuff to entirely go away. I just felt oh, like I, I didn't need as many pages as much of, of it, it as I got. Like I felt like it just could have been edited down just a little bit but again as someone who has not yet quite finished the novel um I'm close but not quite finished I think that it will probably pay off by the end and um and something to keep in mind that I honestly need to keep better in mind because I do think that you are a little bit more experienced in reading like these grand like large sweeping novels like I just think you are. And I I feel like sometimes I do enter a book expecting the pacing to be on par with like, I don't know, like just even like a 350-page novel, right? But like mm-hmm. a 350-page novel has to grab you quicker and has to do a lot more in those first 100 pages than – you know, than what this kind of novel allows for. Because in this one, he's allowed a lot more time and space to say what he wants to say. And yes, so even though, yes, it took like 75 pages for me to be like fully wrapped up in this book. Um, that's still, you did get that's there. still like not even a quarter <laughs> of this book. What did you say? Yeah, you still got there. Like, I still got there. I still got there, and it's still worth it. I still think it's very worth it, especially once you get to the end of, like, chapter six. And I think this, like, parallel universe and also getting more of an image of, like, both of them in their career as artists and as performers, like, I think that there's going to be a lot to talk about in ways of, like, by means of, like, what it means to be a superstar, you know, even, and, like... Like what I love how they talk about celebrity. That's like one yeah. of the things that I noted right off the bat. Like, um, I I really enjoyed reading about that. Like 
that aspect of it. Like, I think it's right away in chapter one when he's talking about Vina. It says, mm-hmm. Vina, to whom even strangers would come, following her star, hopping to receive redemption from her voice, her large, damp eyes, her touch. How was it that so explosive, even immoral a woman, came to be seen as an emblem, an ideal, by more than half the population of the world? Because she was no angel, let me tell you that. But try saying so to Dawn and Hale. Maybe it's just as well she was not born a Christian, or they'd have tried to make her a saint. Our Lady of the Stadiums, our Arena Madonna, bearing her scars to the masses like Alexander the Great, rousing his soldiers for war. Our plastered Mm -hmm. unvirgin, bleeding red tears from her eyes and hot music from her throat. As we retreat from religion, our ancient opiate, there are bound to be withdrawal symptoms. There will be many side effects of this aspirin variety. The habit of worship is not easily broken. In the museums, the rooms with the icons are crowded. We always did prefer our iconic figures, injured, stuck full of arrows, or crucified upside down. We need them flayed and naked. We want to watch their beauty crumble slowly and to observe their narcissistic grief. Not in spite of their faults, but for their faults, we adore them. Worshipping their weaknesses, their pettiness, their bad marriages, their substance abuse, their spite. Seeing ourselves in Vina's mirror and forgiving her, we also forgave ourselves. She redeemed us by her sins. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that not too huge of a pair. Well, it's a pretty good sized paragraph. But like what a like breakdown of celebrity from the beginning of time, kind of. Mm-hmm. And why we are so into celebrities and what it is that attracts us. Like he, he basically just spelled all that out in a paragraph. Yeah. Like so succinctly. And I love, he continues it throughout the book, just this idea of celebrity and what it means. And I don't know. Yeah. I love that quote. It like the same type of thing about just the way that, um, celebrities kind of become the symbol to a lot of people about like their own lives, you know, kind of like this personal thing that they Mm -hmm. connect to. Um, He brings that up again later in the novel where he's talking about um, how uh, Vina and um, Ormus first like made love and like the way that she was open about it. So um, in the book, they fall in love when she's around like 12 fall in love quote unquote when she's 12 years old and he's quite a bit older and he actually like refers to her as a nymphette um and he kind of makes a vow to her and they promise each other that they'll wait until she's 16 and he's um very uh like he really adheres to that vow um much to her chagrin at times and anyway but he the the narrator Rye talks about the details of the deflowering of Mina Aspara, um, about how they're a matter of public record, um, placed there long ago by Vina herself, and how, like, we don't really know how she did this exactly, um, but it's clear that at some point, you know, she shared, whether in a press interview or um, in a memoir or in, a, in some type of writing, um, she shared with the world what her like sex life was like and what her first time was like um, in detail. And he talks about how um, this like quality of hers was part of her stardom 
and um, yeah. the willingness of Vina Apsara to talk publicly about private matters, her catastrophic childhood, her love affairs, her sexual preferences, her abortions, was as important as her talent, perhaps even more important, in the creation of the gigantic, even oppressively symbolic figure she became. For two generations of women, she was something like a megaphone, broadcasting their common secrets to the world. Some felt liberated and others exposed, all commenced to hang upon her every word. Um, I just really liked this, this like idea that she kind of, in a way, in this celebrity and in this vulnerability that it takes to broadcast your life to the world in the way that she does, um, Mm -hmm. or is hinted to have done, um, she becomes, she kind of loses a bit of personhood a little bit and she, she becomes this centerpiece for conversation and, and also this like, center point for other women to identify with or to compare themselves to um and use as a way of like defining themselves like whether they agree with her or didn't agree with her or identified with her or didn't you know it's part of how they're able to talk about themselves is like with her being an example of what they can compare to um and then you know, and then he goes on talking about this and just about how, you know, she died. Um, and he says if she had not died, she might have sunk into a cranky, ignored old age, out of step in a way that was merely wrong or a pig or muddle-headed, whereas once she had defiantly, triumphantly been the only one in the parade marching in step until the other marchers took their lead from her. Um, which is something that's also you know, interesting when you think about like rock and roll specifically and like movie stars and how we all kind of like cling to this tragedy and we all cling to these stories of celebrities that die young or um, die tragically, specifically rock stars. I mean, like there's literally a club for it. It's like the 27 club or 28 club or whatever um, with a Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse and, and, you know, Jimi Hendrix and this kind of idea that, um, in youth, like they have this kind of immortality is interesting, but then also, you know, you feel her loss so deeply, Mm -hmm. even in the first six chapters by those who knew her. Um, right. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. You really do get a sense of that. Like what a, what a, gaping hole is left and then it's just interesting that it's um you know she dies because of this earthquake which and like these great chasms open up in the earth right Mm -hmm. and then it just harks back to the myth of you know him trying to get her back from death her from the underworld and Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i love like there's a it's in chapter one um but uh rai says uh we all looked for we all looked to her for peace, yet she herself was not at peace. And so I've chosen to write here publicly what I can no longer whisper into her private ear. That is everything. I have chosen to tell our story, hers and mine and Orma's Kama's, all of it, every last detail. And then maybe she can find a sort of peace here on the page in this underworld of ink and lies, that respite mm-hmm. which was denied by her life. So I stand at the gate of the inferno of language. There's a barking dog and a ferryman waiting and a coin under my tongue for the fair. You know, and like, brings up the river sticks and like just it mm-hmm. all gets woven in there and I, you really do get this really this sense of just what a big like person she was 
Yeah. Which I, those references to the myth specifically usually would bug mm-hmm. me. Um, like, yeah, I get generally. I get that. Yeah. Generally, like I want t- to be able to pick up on it on my own and feel really smart for doing so rather than being like told that <laughs> I'm like, supposed to be doing it. <laughs> um, but I think it's done really well here where there's this like acknowledgement that, you know, this story um, and this loss is maybe not unique. And it, it made me think about um, I took like a classics class in college and stuff. And we were talking mm-hmm. about literature and like the kind of stories that we read in Greek myth um, and how really it's the same stories that are being told over and over again. And every story that could be told is basically been told through Greek myth and thematically anyway. Um, And I think that's true. Like there's something about these stories that we can't keep away from and that we keep coming to. And like, even though, you know, we start this book knowing she dies, knowing kind of maybe the end in that kind of way, you know, we still want to know like how, we got there and can it change and like where were the breaking points that create like let us here or something you know and I think that's something that is um commonly explored like there's a reason we keep telling these stories and um Orpheus and Eurydice is an interesting one too because it's so tragic and in that myth um there's like a very specific point where that you can point to of like this person like fucked up and it's almost like every time you you hear the story you're like oh like is he is he gonna do it is he gonna or is he gonna make the right decision um and I don't know if you or like if any of the other like listeners on this podcast have listened to um or seen the Broadway show Hades Town, but I really love it. It's a retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice, and all the characters are named, you know, like what they are. But it's takes place during the Great Depression, and um, it's still like very. There still seems to be like magic, you know, but it's taking place at this great time of like hunger and like need and starvation and. Um, the, it's kind of like the reason that there's the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl that's happening is because Persephone stayed too long underground with Hades. And um, that musical does such a good job of talking about like why we tell this story. And it ends um, after Orpheus turns around, um, which he should not have done, and Eurydice goes back to the underworld um it's so sad it's very tragic we've spent you know two and a half hours with these characters we love them and the narrator talks about you know like why we're going to continue telling the story and why people keep coming back and how important it is and like kind of like the hope and also the the way that people relate to it and um and it ends with him singing the same song that they used to start the play and I just that's how I just like I love this story and I do feel like I could read it over and over and over again and it's part yeah. of what is definitely pulling me in to this novel I think this novel is doing a really good job and it's not being like 
overly obvious either with that connection. Like I still don't exactly know what the connection is going to be maybe other than this concept of like the underworld and um, the, you know, obviously like the music plays a big part into it. Um, But I'm excited to see how that connection um, to the myth grows um, as we continue to read the book. Yeah, I I think you'll be very happy with it. Like, I, I love how it's all interwoven, and I think it's yeah. done so well. I have not seen Hadestown, but I have tickets. It's coming next year. You're gonna be you're gonna be obsessed. Like, I love it so much. When it came out, um, I listen to it all the time. If you love like jazz and that kind of music, then you'll love it. It's it is so appreciative of um like the musicians and of jazz and of the music and takes time to appreciate those the orchestra and everything and that's something I really like about it um I remember when it came out I actually told Kendrick I was like you have to listen to this this is so amazing and the first song just like will really capture you um but it's fun. I also really like that story because it's something that that specific, the writer who wrote that musical, Aeneas Mitchell, um, she's been telling this story since 2006. She wrote this musical in 2006. And it was um, started as like a concept album where she just sang all the songs. And then there was an off-Broadway production Um like I think a couple of times before she finally like perfected it and it got on Broadway finally in 2016 I think no yeah it was I think maybe maybe 2016 maybe 20 maybe it was later it may have been like 2018 or something um because it was yeah it would have had to be later because I think it won the um Tony Award for Best Musical in like 2019 yeah so it's it's excellent I highly recommend it um you're gonna really love it you're gonna have to tell me how it is I I still haven't seen it I really want to go see it in New York or something awesome well I'm excited to see it um and I'm excited to finish talking about this book next episode so if you guys have not go pick up your copy get through chapters one through six and then through 12 we'll be discussing seven through 12 right the next episode so um yeah you I think and I'm we're interested to hear what you think so if you read it and you know give us your thoughts we'd love to hear from you um and also if you have any suggestions for our next book if anyone's dying for us to to do one uh because we haven't picked quite yet so Go ahead and send us your suggestions too. But we will have that up um, as soon as we do decide. We'll put it on our Instagram and then also uh, we'll announce it the next episode. Um, We didn't talk about our drinks. Oh, shit. Yes. Um, Brian made me a delicious white Russian. It's a good color. Like it's not too, it doesn't look too milky. I know. He's perfected like the, the ratio. I think. I don't know exactly what he does. I should probably watch him one of these times when he does it. But why would I do that (laughs) when he can just like bring me the drink? I just have to ask. He's he's so obedient. Like I was just in the bed. Like I was in the bedroom and I was getting like set up and stuff. And then I was just like, Brian, what do you think I should have for my cocktail? 
can you think of anything? And he was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, like, you could have a white Russian. We have stuff for that. And I was like, okay. And then I gave it, like, another, like, five minutes. And then I was like, hey, babe, do you think you could go make me a white Russian? And he just, like, got right up out of his chair and was like, okay. And, like, went right down and made me a white Russian within seconds of me asking him. I'm telling you, I think he missed me when I was gone. Well, that's very impressive. I'll be super impressed, though, when you're like, oh, I'm recording with Audra tonight. And he goes, oh, well, what would you like to drink? And like, has it made for you? Then I'll be really, really impressed. Okay. Well, I'm sure it'll happen. Let's get to that level. I'm I'm sure it will, too. But that is very sweet. I might have to I might have to leave for two weeks next time for him to 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 be missing to 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 having missed me on that level that he's going to be like that attentive. Um, but I will say if this is how it stays forever, I'll still be very pleased. Um, he I would spoils be too. Me. Well, that's very sweet. <laughs> um, I, so when we were together, we went to this great restaurant in Cambridge called Little Donkey and they made this yes. great cocktail. It was basically a Paloma, but in a hollowed out grapefruit. And then they just put, brought it to you in like a bowl and it was so good. So I tried to do the same thing. So I hauled out my grapefruit and then mm-hmm. I mixed tequila and some grapefruit soda mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. poured that over crushed ice that was in the grapefruit. Um, I was going to add a rosemary sprig, but I didn't have any and I didn't want to go out to get them. It was too late. Um, but yeah, it's pretty good and it's fun and silly and ridiculous and yeah. So and delicious I- and cute and awesome. That drink was so fucking good. If you're in the Boston area and like, Cambridge area specifically you should go to the little donkey because they had amazing amazing food yes I want to go I want to take I want to take Brian there like next week like I am so excited about their menu and um it was really fun so yes that drink looked amazing I saw your post about it on Instagram and it looked very refreshing and delicious it's pretty good um so yeah so make yourselves a drink whatever you Mm -hmm. choose pick your poison uh, and get finished reading mm-hmm. and listen to our next episode. We've got two more for the book. So um, I think that's it. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. 